Girl Camper is sponsored by Progressive Insurance. Get an RV policy quote by calling 1-800-PROGRESSIVE or going to progressive.com backslash RV. And go Little Guy Worldwide, whose full line of lightweight camping trailers are Girl Camper favorites. My name is Janine Pettit, and I'm a girl camper. I go places and I do things in my little 1966 Go Tag Along vintage travel trailer. Along the way, I meet many interesting people traveling the back roads, and I want to share their stories with you. We will talk about the qualities of what makes a girl camper and how you can become a girl camper too. The girl campers are having a party, and you're invited. Stay tuned while I share what's happening on the back roads of America the Beautiful. Welcome. I'm Janine Pettit, Girl Camping Ambassador, Blogger, Adventurist, and Podcaster. And this is Episode 57 of Girl Camper, the Podcast. My guest today is Mary Grace McKernan, photojournalist and girl camper extraordinaire. I met Mary at Blog Her last summer in L.A. and thought she had the best job ever. She has traveled internationally covering rock bands to rock slides. She lives in Seattle, Washington and works in media for REI at their flagship store. She's here today to tell us what life is like for a girl with a camera willing to travel. She's going places and doing things, and she's sharing it all here today. Stay tuned to meet the talented and funny Mary Grace McKernan, or, as we know her, Grace with a Lens. Girl Camper News Roundup is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. You know, they want you to know if you're going to get out there and camp like a girl, you can have all of your personal effects protected by them. It's an optional coverage that they have, and they will replace any lost, damaged, or stolen items from in or around your RV. It's a great policy to have when you're out there on the road, and you can learn more about it by calling 1-800-PROGRESSIVE or by visiting progressive.com backslash RV today. Well, the first thing I want to talk about in the news roundup today is I want to thank everybody for all of the birthday wishes. So many people took the time on social media to send congratulations and well wishes on our one-year anniversary of the Girl Camper podcast. Who knew, right? And I, I, I want to take this minute one more time to thank my producer, Stephanie, who does so much herself to motivate people to get outdoors and live in the world, get out there and go places and do things. So thank you, Stephanie, for all you do on your own RVFTA podcast. I also want to take a moment and just separately 
thank my sponsors, Progressive Insurance and Little Guy Worldwide, for all that they do to contribute to making this podcast possible. Progressive and Little Guy invested in my listeners, and that means so much. They said, we want to help you achieve your goals, and I'm so, so grateful for that. So Progressive Insurance and Little Guy Worldwide, thank you one more time for investing in all of us girl campers. (laughs) The other thing I want to do is just take a moment and thank you, my listeners, because I have been following your progress this whole year, and so many of you who write in and tell me about your dream to be doers, to be people who get out there and do things, and I'm following your progress, and now over the course of this year, the people who had the dream are now out there, and they're doing things, and they're buying tents, and they're buying camping equipment, and they're buying kayaks, and outdoor gear, and travel trailers, and they're going places and doing things, and that's what this show is all about. It's about encouraging those who are kind of on the sidelines, looking in to Be aware of the fact that you don't have to be a physical fitness buff to go camping and to be um, a person who goes outside and does things. A one-mile hike for someone who's never done it before is a great hike, and it's a starting place. And I want everybody to know how much it means to me when you share those things with me and your progress, and I hope that this podcast always is um, just an encouraging platform for everybody. So anyway, it was very touching this week having everybody's cards and notes and letters coming in, and I, I, I'm just grateful for all of you. So thank you for letting me share in your progress. Okay, so where are we going from here? We're going to a camper college. I am heading out here on Thursday morning, and I'm heading down to Texas because I'm going to be at Princess Craft RV in Round Rock, Texas. We're doing a camper college there. Princess Craft is hosting all of us. They're going to help teach women how to become girl campers. What do you need to know to own, tow, and operate your own travel trailer to get outside and go places and do things? That's going to be Friday, November um, 11th, Round Rock, Texas, Princess Craft RV. You do not need a reservation, and you don't have to be a girl camper. It's open to anyone. So if you want to bring your Mr. Sister, you want to bring your best friend, you want to bring your mom, your boyfriend, your dog, anybody, come and just join us. We promise not to... um Lock the door. (laughs) You don't have to have a reservation to come to that. It's just going to be a great night. And one of the things that I'm very excited about about this event is one of my favorite people in the world is going to be joining us there, and that's Mandy Lee. I don't know if listeners all remember Mandy Lee. I don't know if you heard this episode. Mandy was my guest on episode 41, The Mountains Made Her Do It. And she talks all about how she left her secure job sold everything in her apartment, bought herself a little tiny tag trailer, and hit out to photograph the world. And she sort of had this epiphany when she was up in the um, Tetons photographing the sunrise. And she just thought, I'm not going to go back to that job. I'm going to, I'm going to chuck it. I'm going to do it. And she took this incredible leap of faith and it's an incredible story. And she has traveled tens of thousands of miles since her interview on episode 41. So Mandy is going to be at Princess Craft with us. You can meet her in person. I hope you are following her on Instagram and on Facebook because her photographs are stunning and I'm looking forward to catching up with her. I'm going to interview her again. She's going to tell everybody what she's been up to and that's going to be very exciting. So 
So looking forward to seeing Mandy. Now, the other thing I'm doing down in Texas is when I leave Princess Craft, I'm heading straight up on Saturday morning to McKinney, Texas, which I think is about four hours north of where I'm going to be. So I'm going to have to get up early and go. The Sisters on the Fly are having a big fundraiser in McKinney, Texas. It's called Mayhem in McKinney. It's an annual event. There's going to be 30 or 40 Sister on the Fly, little trailers all on display there. So much trailer eye candy, and it's $5. And the proceeds from this trailer tour go to CASA, which is an organization near and dear to my heart. They're a child advocacy group for foster children. And as a former foster mother, I really benefited from CASA in my own experiences. So I'm so happy to support this cause. That's all taking place on the square. McKinney, Texas is one of those adorable little Texas towns with a town square. You're not going to have trouble finding it. When you drive into town, there'll be signs all over. It's a little north of Dallas. So if you're anywhere in that area this coming Saturday, November 12th, $5 to see the Sisters on the Fly. So I'll be there and hopefully I'll run into you. The next thing I'm doing after that is I'm going to be visiting my mom while I'm in Texas, but then I'm going to be heading out to Abilene, Texas to visit another spectacular woman, which is one of the big perks of my job. I get to meet really incredible women. And my friend Mary Gregory invited me out to her little homestead in Abilene to paint with her for a couple of days, and I am not passing up on that. So I'm going to visit David and Mary Gregory out in their ranch in Abilene, and then I am heading to Little Rock, Arkansas. Actually, North Little Rock, Arkansas. So this is a very interesting thing, but there is a trend happening and it's called urban camping. They are developing camping spaces in and around big cities. And North Little Rock, Arkansas, which is right on the Arkansas River, because if we were in Kansas, it would be the Arkansas River. But if you're in Arkansas, they call it the Arkansas River. On the Arkansas River in North Little Rock is an urban campground. And they called me and they thought, it would be a cool thing for the girl campers to have an event there. So I'm going down there to scout that whole thing out. Maybe that's where we're going to do Go Girl Go 2017, our Camp Like a Girl event. So I'm heading over to North Little Rock, and I'm going to tour the urban campground there, and I'm going to see all the sites, and um, then I'll be reporting back whether that's a good location. It sounds like it could be a lot of fun, so I'm looking forward to that. So that's our news roundup for today. I'm going to be in Texas. If you're going to be anywhere near there next weekend, I'd love to have you come out and see us at Princess Craft or up at Mayhem in McKinney. Stay tuned. I'm going to be back in a minute, and I'm going to be talking in our campfire chat about what my plans are for the St. George over the winter. I had to winterize my trailer this week. She's all shut down. He's all shut down for the winter. Coming back. Campfire Chat today is sponsored by Little Guy Trailers. They're in the business of getting you into the great outdoors. 
They really, really do make camping easier and that makes it more fun because when you don't have to worry about that big trailer behind you and you can just enjoy your trip and you can tow those on nearly anything, it is what makes it so possible and easy to get out there on the road. So thank you, Little Guy Trailers. You can always learn more about them at Camper College down in um, Round Rock, Texas next weekend or also at littleguy.com. So thank you, Little Guy. Now, in our campfire chat today, I want to talk about that that thing that happens every year, that sad thing that happens when the weather starts dipping down. So here we are in the Northeast, and we've had a couple of really hard frosts, so I had to do that thing I dread doing, and I had to shut down the camper. It had to be winterized. My husband did it for me on um, Monday. I wanted to postpone it because... We were actually at the campground last night, but um, it, but he closed down the trailer on Monday, so no plumbing working in it, but it's still usable. We can still take it anywhere, plug it in, and have um, heat in it, but we're just not able to use any of the plumbing. So uh, it's sad because be, the campgrounds in the Northeast all close. Most of them are closed now. The campground we always go to when I talk about Turkey Swamp, the one that is so close to us, um, next weekend is the final weekend and all the girl campers are going there to shut it down. We do it every year and I can't go this year because I'll be in Texas, but, um, it's that time of year that we have to start thinking about our trips for next year and planning them. And it's one of the things we're going to be talking about over the next few weeks. But I thought today I just wanted to talk about what I'm going to do in that camper over the winter. So one of the things I want to talk about is when you're winterizing your camper, you know, you make sure that you've got all of the plumbing lines drained and you've got antifreeze in them. I couldn't tell you how to do that. My husband did it for me and I didn't even watch, but make sure it's done properly. If you don't know how to do it, my husband just watched a YouTube video when he did it. But if you don't know how to do that, have a professional do it for you because it's $100 to have someone come out to your house and do it or to take it to a dealership and do it. If it's not done right, it could be thousands of dollars in damage. So you've made this investment in the trailer, so just make sure you do that properly. If you're not a handy person, maybe you just need to take it. My husband's a home inspector. He knows how all these things work, so I'm pretty confident he did it correctly. But the other thing you want to do, and it depends on where your trailer is parked, Mine is just parked in my driveway and I don't have a problem with mice. But a lot of people who park theirs in a field, it's full of field mice. And even though a trailer is brand new, it's very easy for mice to get in a trailer. And one of the sort of homeopathic cures for that is to put in peppermint oil. So you go to the health food store and you get peppermint oil and you put it on cotton swabs. You, you really put 20, 30 drops of this really potent peppermint oil. It really smells and they hate the smell of peppermint oil. And you put that in a glass jar. Don't put it in plastic because it actually will corrode the plastic away. So just put it in an empty little glass jar or a small juice cup underneath the sink. Some people put them down Outside, you can drop peppermint oil around the ground outside or uh, actually on the tires because they climb the tires to get into the wheel wells. It's an entry point. So 
put that peppermint oil under the sink, on the countertops, on the floor, underneath the bed, in the storage things. It takes two or three days in the spring of the windows being opened in order for that peppermint oil smell to get out. It is extremely strong, but it really, really is the thing that gets rid of mice. So if you don't want poisons and things like that in your trailer, that's a good thing to do. Okay, now I've got a couple of projects I'm going to work on on the St. George over the winter. When I got the trailer, I had all these design ideas. And I think when you get a trailer, it's sort of like buying a house. You need to live in it for a while to figure out how the space works for you. So over the course of this summer, and we took so many trips, I, I didn't add up how many nights we actually stayed in the camper, but... It was a lot, more than ever. It's the maximum amount of camping I've done in a year. And I can see that there are things about that trailer that don't work for me. So I say this all the time. In every trailer, there's no nirvana. Every trailer is going to need adaptations, no matter how well designed and thought out the floor plan and the storage solutions are in any trailer, it's going to work differently for every person. So some of the things that I am going to alter over the winter when it's parked out there in my driveway, if I get a decent day and I can go out there, the number one thing I'm going to do is change the closet in this trailer. Now, if you follow forums or if you're on I mean, I have a Riverside Retro, so on the Whitewater Forum and chat rooms, I see people on their Facebook page talking about modifications that they've made, and I've seen this done in other trailers. So it has a probably 10-inch, I, I don't, I've never measured it, so I don't know exactly what it is, I'm guessing. It's about only a 10-inch wide little closet. It has a coat hanger rack across the top, and I could probably put 12 blouses in there. Well, I don't generally wear blouses while I'm camping. I usually don't need things when I'm camping that have to be hung on a coat hanger. <laughs> so, so, And I find that the more I work in the whole RV industry and the outdoor world, the less and less dress clothes I have. I had to go someplace the other day and I said to my husband, I haven't bought a dress in like five years. I've got to go buy a dress to wear to this event. <laughs> my whole wardrobe is jeans and hiking pants and, and jackets and, and turtlenecks and, you know, outdoor gear. And I don't need coat hangers for those. So I've seen this modification in many trailers, and I'm going to do it this winter. And that is that they take the closet rack out and they put shelves in in that closet. It's actually quite deep. So I'm going to be able to stack things too deep, one behind. So if I could put all my sweaters and outdoor jackets behind and in hiking shirts and things up front, I can do a lot more storage-wise in there. And that will leave me space for other things that I need because I'm always juggling my um, um, gear for the, the bathroom. I'm always looking for a place to put the shower, shampoo, soap, conditioner, all those things because the Riverside Retro has a wet bath. You can't keep those things in the bathroom. So I just decided that that's one of my winter projects. I'm going to reorganize the closets in there, and I have a running list in my head of things that just need to find a home, and hopefully I can get that done over the winter. The other thing I'm going to do in the trailer is, I know some people, I said this on Instagram, and people were like, really? Really? Are you really going to do that? 
I know I'm sorry, all you 1950s diners people, but I am going to cover the red and white vinyl 1950s diner looking cushions in that trailer with actual breathable fabric. <laughs> I do not like to sit on vinyl cushions in the summer when it's hot out. I, I just, I don't like the look of that. Um, those cushions at all. So a lot of people really love that about this trailer. But I tell the people at Riverside Retro all the time, look, you can be a 1950s diner with the black and white checkerboard floor and the vinyl cushions. And if that's the look you want, that's the look you got. But if you have the birchwood interior, it's just a aesthetic clash in my mind. You're either a 50s diner or you're a 1940s Birchwood beauty, but you can't be both at the same time. <laughs> so that's going. So I, I already bought the fabric. I like a breathable fabric. I want something I can take off and run through the washing machine. So that's a sewing project for me. I actually hate making box cushions, but I know how to do it, and I'm going to save the money, and I'm going to do it myself. So that's a project over the winter. The other thing that has been bothering me about the trailer that I'm going to fix over the winter is the windows. And I've talked about this before. I don't like the airflow in the design of those windows. So when the window slides to the left, it really only leaves a little over maybe a third of the actual window that air can flow through. And it's frustrating and, and it's it's choking heat sometimes and the air conditioner is quite loud and I don't like to turn it on unless I actually have to. So the way the curtain rods came in there, when you have a curtain on there, which you of course want for privacy at night, um, it covers even more of the window. So I have a couple of things I saw and one of them is just matchstick blinds that would mount to the ceiling and come down over the window. That way, the air could still flow and I could still have privacy. So I'm on the search for all of that. I'm going to figure out how I can do that over the winter. And those are things I'm going to be working on, which will keep me connected to my little camper. <laughs> the other thing I wanted to do, and I don't know if I'm going to be able to pull this off because this falls into a marriage thing. <laughs> I really do not like the flooring in the camper. It's just a very benign um faux um, hardwood floor, but it's a gray color. And the whole camper is this beautiful birchwood beauty. So I, I really would love to cover the entire floor with actual linoleum squares. You can't install linoleum in the dead of winter. It needs to be at a certain temperature in order to do that. Linoleum is really heavy it doesn't really come in sheets. You can only buy it in squares. And so to have authentic linoleum in there would be a major project. So I'm going to be on the search over the winter for something that looks like linoleum, but wouldn't be as difficult to install and maybe change out that floor. The other thing I'm on the fence about with the trailer design-wise is whether or not to paint the base cabinets in the kitchen. So the whole trailer has the birchwood interior, and that includes the ceiling. It's a lot of wood. <laughs> so I do love the birchwood interior, but when I was in the woody trailer made by Gulfstream, I noticed there's sort of a better balance in there because the way they did that vintage cruiser for Gulfstream is the wood is on the cabinets and it's on the doors uh, and the walls, 
but it's not on the ceiling. The ceiling was white. And that is what I did in my little lake house trailer. The ceiling is white and the walls were wood. So anyway, I'm, I've been thinking about painting the base cabinets of that, but that's going to be a big leap for me because that's something that cannot be undone. So I might have to just live with it a little while longer. But those are my projects for the winter. I think it's going to keep me in that state of mind and keep me looking forward to using the trailer again in the spring. I'm hoping to still use it over the winter because in New Jersey, sometimes it's very mild. You know, it's just last last winter we had a lot of snow. It wasn't a good winter for that. But um in case it's mild, I can still pull it out when it's winterized and take it anywhere and use it plugged into electricity with the heater working and the propane working. I just won't be able to use the plumbing. So that's okay with me because I've camped that way my whole life. It's the first time I ever had a functioning bathroom in a trailer, so I don't think that's going to be a problem for me. But I'm looking forward to working on these little projects over the winter and um, just getting ready to use it again next spring. Looking forward to all of those trips. So we're going to be back in a minute, and we're going to have Mary Grace McKernan. I loved meeting Mary. She was a spectacular woman. What a fascinating career she has. And she's just the type of woman I think just inspires other women. She had so much to talk about and so much to give, and she is a percolator of enthusiasm about everything she talks about. I just loved her. So I'll be back in a minute, and we're going to be talking with Mary Grace McKernan, photojournalist. Listeners, oh, I have such a special guest today, and I'm so glad she is here with us. I have on the line here Mary Grace McKernan. Is that Irish enough for you? <laughs> Mary <laughs> is a woman I met at Blog Her, and we just, I think we were sitting together at breakfast or something. I can't even remember. And she told me she was a photojournalist, and Mary is on. Um, the show today to talk about what a day in the life of a photojournalist is, how you become one, where she goes on location. So, Mary, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks so much for um, calling me and having me on, Janine. And it was a pleasure meeting you at BlogHer. And um, yes, I think you found me walking around. I was a, I was looking a little lost, and you were <laughs> you pointed me in the right direction. <laughs> it, it's one of my super uh, hero skills. <laughs> <laughs> I just know where people need to go. <laughs> well, Mary, I don't I can't remember you and I ended up having lunch together and chatting and you were telling me about your job. So, you are a photojournalist who works for REI and also takepart.com, which is a media company as well. And I was just fascinated by some of the places that you have gone and the things that you do and you must wake up every morning and pinch yourself and go, is this my job? <laughs> yes. It's fun when I'm out in the field. It, it really is exciting and the people I get to meet and the things that I get to do. Um, and, and especially some of the stories I've worked on in the past year, it's, it's, it, it, it has been a lot of fun and um, I've learned a ton. 
Well, I want to talk about how a person becomes a photojournalist. Can you tell me, first tell me, Mary, did you grow up in Southern California? I know when we were there together, you were visiting your mom. Is that where your family was from? Yes. Um, I grew up on, on both coasts, actually. I, um, my father lived in Los Angeles, and my mother lived in, um, on Long Island in New York. So I... Um, I grew up, they divorced when I was like young, like about three. So I, I would go to both coasts. But so um, when I was in grammar school and junior high, I was in on the East Coast and would visit Los Angeles. And then when I uh, got to high school, I wanted to go live where it was warm. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense, right? <laughs> and I played tennis. So I wanted to move out to live with my dad in Los Angeles. Okay. And so... Um, so I grew up on both coasts, actually. Okay. So what were family vacations like for you? Did you have an adventurous family? Where did this adventurous spirit of yours come from? Well, yes, I did. And my, 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 both my parents like to travel. And I, got, I was the youngest of four, so I had the benefit of, of going with them wherever they went. So it, my mom used to... Um, she used to like to go um, down to the Caribbean, and so I would go with her um, to Aruba or to St. Thomas, and and it was so much fun. And I, I can't even tell you how much I love the Caribbean. And um, we would also go to um, uh, Poughkeepsie, and um, we would because we had a she had a place there. And so in the fall, we would go and and stay up in the mountains, which I I loved. Yeah, and then on my. And then on my father's side, um, he was a skier. So I went skiing with him to Colorado, to Vail, and to, um, uh, to Mammoth, and, which is in Northern California. And, um, and, and, and actually, I, I learned to ski in Vermont. So I was always out doing something over the holidays and over the breaks and at summer times. It sounds was, like you were a very active outdoor person. You know, it was it was just part of my life, and and when I was a kid, my mom, um, uh, you know, thought it was important that I work. And so, when I turned fourteen, um, they have the Conservation Corps on Long Island. And that was set up, you know, by the you know Franklin D. Roosevelt, and it was to clean up the beaches. Um, you know, Fire Island, and okay, and so I, I would go, and 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 so the environment and being outdoors was just a huge thing for me, and um and I loved it, and we would go out, and we would you know go to some of the parks, and we would learn about you know the flora and the fauna, but then we would clean up the trails. <laughs> so, do you think that influenced the direction your career ended up going in when when you set off to go to college? Did you have that in you, like that you wanted to tell stories about this? I absolutely did, and that was. I mean, I I knew I wanted to be a photographer, and I knew I wanted to be a journalist because I loved you know writing, and then, but. You know, broadcasting was sort of in the, you know, the thing. So, like, you know, I, I broadcasting schools were, were, were starting and, and becoming a um, broadcasting journalist. And so you didn't have to go, you know, through a newspaper anymore um, to end up, you know, in, in TV. 
So where, um, you know, broadcast news. So that's where I found myself attracted to was, was video and, and, and being on television. And, and, um, and that was hence my, my, you know, my first job out of college was at CBS News in New York So where did you go to Um, college? Oh, um, I went to Arizona State University. Okay. And I graduated, um, I have a broadcast journalism degree. Okay. And um, at the, you know, from the, and the school at Arizona State is the Walter Cronkite School of Journalism. And I graduated from that school. Oh, so that must have been like the place to go. Um, it, it was, they were doing cutting edge stuff. I mean, because they were, they had a studio, um, on campus. So we were, you know, we were playing with cameras and we were playing with, you know, video and, and I, I, you know, it was just sort of one of those things where our classes were all about, you know, how do you direct an, a, you know, a news sequence? What, what is interesting? How do you write for television and, and, and you know, where we learned to write for newspapers, but then, as you decided, okay, I'm going to stick in broadcast news, um, you know, how do you write for radio, television? So, so you went off I to CBS in New York? Yes. And what and was, was your job very lucky. <laughs> Well, it was very lucky. I was very, very young, and I had a lot of, I just would call people all the time. and You had chutzpah. I, yeah, you know, <laughs> I, I moved to New York City, and I... You know, I lived, my mom lived out on Long Island. So when I, when I graduated from ASU, I, I, I went out to her house and I said, well, I'm going to go live in the city. And I, <laughs> I, you know, she, I, I found an apartment to rent in, you know, in the newspaper. And I didn't know the difference between the East and West side. <laughs> so I was on 55th street, but I was on the West side and, you know, and I, I was looking for the wrong apartment building, so I ended up. The guy goes, "No, you want the east side." So I didn't realize Fifth Avenue <laughs> um, split the, the east and west side. So that was my first, you know, first uh, lesson in New York City, l- exactly in Manhattan. Um, and then I had to get a job, so I um, it was a friend of a friend of a friend was worked for CBS research, which is the, when they have people watch television shows and then hold a green button or a red button if they like it, they don't like it as they're watching. <laughs> and they needed people, they needed people to hand out tickets in front of St. Patrick's cathedral to get an audience. Oh, so gosh. I did that <laughs> in, the, in the heat and the summer. And, um, one day I was working at BlackRock and I was going up to get more tickets to hand out and I was on the um, elevator and um, uh, Mr. Paley got on the elevator and he uh, started CBS. And so I was like, oh my gosh, I'm on the, I'm on the elevator. <laughs> <laughs> the person agreed. So I just started talking and I said, you know, I'm really trying to get a job with benefits and yeah. <laughs> a news degree and and he he sent me over to his assistant, and his assistant got me a job. His assistant got me a job down in human resources. Oh my god! So you took advantage of that moment in time, <laughs> and it mm-hmm. really paid off. Oh yeah, and 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 you know, and he was he just thought I was he was like he couldn't believe it, and and I just said it. It wasn't you know I used my I I just. 
I just said it and yeah. and his assistant was very nice and said, you know, we actually have a position for a file clerk downstairs and and I was the I was a file clerk for two weeks and two weeks later I was a desk assistant in CBS Radio Network News over on West Fifty Seventh. Oh wow. So all from just being um I was, I, you know, having a lot of manners and saying hello. Yeah, yeah. So, so how long were you at CBS? I was at CBS News for uh, five years. Okay, and where did you go from there? Uh, from there, I went to, um, I moved back to Los Angeles, and I got a job at, um, I got a job at uh, uh, the Los Angeles Times. That's not too shabby either. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what did yeah, you do there? And that was what did you do there? I um, I worked with their features person on researching stories for um, entertainment. Okay. So where does and, the photojournalism um, part come in? When did photography become the bigger part of what you were doing? Well, I always was, I always wanted to be a photographer and I could, I was writing and I was researching and I would choose the photo and that was always part of, you know, what I wanted to do. Then I, and, or video. And then I, um, when I was at, uh, when I was at the Los Angeles Times, I got a job at E! Entertainment with promotions. And I got to go out with a camera, a video camera, and, 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 and talk to people and interview people on camera. Uh, like out on the and, street when they would stop and ask yes. people questions? But it wasn't that. It was we would go to movie premieres and like if Sylvester Stallone would walk by, hey, can you talk to us? Okay. And and. And so I was the camera, I had the camera and it was never, they never saw the person who was asking questions because we only wanted to use sound bites. Okay. So, um, and then, so that was just, so here I am still video, I'm not with a still camera, but doing a lot of still photography. Um, but that was, as far as my job, that's what I would do. So um, we would ask like Sylvester Stallone or Jamie um, Lee Curtis, if they could say, you know, hi, I'm Jamie Lee Curtis, and, you know, you're watching E! Entertainment Television. <laughs> that was your assignment, to get them to say that. That was my assignment. And I knew, so I got to know all of these people because they were wanting to promote themselves. So. Yeah. Um, and it was a lot of, of, of you know, the news and, and things like that. Yeah. And, and uh, so it would just, so, but still, I wanted to do, the photography that was always part of my, you know, my repertoire. So when you were doing these jobs, were you working on your still photography skills, like on your free time? Were you building a portfolio? Absolutely. Absolutely, I was. And um, it was always, that was always on the, you know, I was always, I always had that going, um, and I was I was still I had a lot of fine art stuff being shown at galleries, and and um, and and you know, and I had this incredible news background, and I could get a story. So um, so that was, and then I I moved over to, but I I moved over to 
to 20th Century Fox. And um, the thing, this is where it really sort of took off. Um, so what happens is when you have to decorate a set on a motion picture, you have to use artwork behind, you know, in a in a room or a wherever they're at. Um, it has to be that artwork has to be cleared. So it, you okay. just can't use any. You can't like put a Picasso, right? Because so somebody owns the, the rights. Exactly. So one of the art directors for a movie looked at me and she said, well, you're a photographer. Let's use your work. Oh, wow. And she will yeah. we'll pay you. So I said, I said, fine. I said, it's cleared. And, and, and so you walk into the, the, you know, to the person's apartment in the movie and it's the, all the photography. It's all my artwork. Oh, cool. So, <laughs> Then I was, so I did that, and then um, it was great to be, you know, to participate in that. Um, but still, I had this big photography background, and everybody started to know it. And then I went to McGraw-Hill, and where I was the um, photo editor, photographer for McGraw-Hill. Now, and doesn't I was in McGraw-Hill, of, I, I'm sorry, McGraw-Hill does textbooks, don't they? Yes. They are the number one publisher of educational textbooks in the world. Okay. So what was your job there? So I was a photo editor photographer for all for their for their high school textbooks. But not their academic ones like the, you know, I was the EZA classes, the the vocational stuff, the fun <laughs> the fun classes like marketing and, yeah. and and entrepreneurship. So I took care I um would photograph or find photos for all of their textbooks for, um, you know, for, 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 for these vocational classes. Okay. Um, and their number one selling book, which was health, because health was the standard throughout all of all 50 states. Okay. Um, and um, so it was a big, big seller for McGraw-Hill, and they wanted somebody who, um, you know, had a background in a you know, communicating with people and, and with authors and things like that. So, And now, um, you, when you were at, you said you were there for five years? Uh, yes. How did you end up at REI and back in um, the West Coast? Well, in 2000, I, I thought it was going to be, because I, I was their culinary photographer at, at, at McGraw-Hill, so I was doing all of their food photography for their food textbooks and um, so then I, and I thought I was going to be there forever. And then 2009 happened and the economy, um, took a dump and, um, I, I wasn't sure what to do and, and I didn't want to move to, um, Ohio. So, cause I was from Los Angeles and I owned a house and, and so I stayed in Los Angeles because I'd already started to build up a business and of, of, doing a, a lot of freelance photography and I was shooting a lot of rock and roll shows at the Hollywood bowl and other venues. And I, um, I figured, well, I'm just going to stay down in Southern California. Because and, would and, keeping uh, your McGraw Hill job meant would mean you moving to Ohio? Yes. Okay. And I just, and I wasn't ready to leave Ohio and, and, um, I, you know, and I'd gone to Ohio a lot to to uh, Columbus, where the headquarters were. 
So you were in L.A. and you're doing all these side jobs and building this reputation. What brought you up to um, Seattle, Washington in the REI flagship store? So I decided that I needed to kind of shake it up a little bit. And I wanted to um, stay on the West Coast because I wanted to stay close to, you know, my brothers and sisters and my family. And I decided that I would, you know, I wanted to move up to Seattle. So I, because um, I, I love it up here, it's the Pacific Northwest is just gorgeous. And it was back to that outdoor kind of life, which is really what I was attracted to. And I ended up um, walking into the Seattle flagship store and saying, you know, and I saw some of the photography and I said, you know what, I want to work. I want to work here, you know, I work at REI. And I couldn't get anybody in the media studio to look at my um, to to look at my portfolio. So I actually started in the store okay. and its flagship store. Hey, that and worked I out for you it. in New York. <laughs> yeah, I loved it. I I loved it. I thought it was just. I thought it was great. And then I ended up. Um, I ended up getting the. I, I I ended up sending my um, because I was a full time employee. I sent my um, my portfolio down to the media studio, and then they brought me they brought me in here. Um, so you work. sort of devised a plan to go in the side door there, Mary. Yes, I did. <laughs> but that worked, and I bravo for you. <laughs> and, it, and it worked, and it's it's a lot of hustling, but it it, yeah. it definitely definitely worked. So tell me what you do um, on an assignment. What does a typical photojournalist assignment look like for you? So what happened was um, they called me in and, and, you know, they wanted to give me a tour of the studio. They saw my rock and roll work and they knew that I had this, this, um, you know, this experience in, in, um, in cast, you know, in, in entertainment and casting and, and things like that, and, and having worked in the movie business and then at E Entertainment, and so they asked if I could help them develop a software um, and to where all of the store employees and members of REI could sign up for a um, to sign up for an account to be considered as talent for. Um, for for REI photo shoots because as you know we use real authentic people and you know once in a while we will use models when needed but most of the time we use we use the real thing we use the, if it's a stand up paddle person it's a real stand up paddle person okay yeah and um so I and then they bring in a they hire a freelance photographer or, or to come and, and to shoot you know so I work with the producers to okay. to with the casting. So then what would happen is they would need a picture, a photo for human resources or public affairs of the CEO or any of the executives. And um, I would go, they would say, Mary, you're, you're, you're a photographer. You go over and take a picture of them. So I would do that. Or we had a new, uh, all of the employees had a new green vest to wear. So um, in the stores. So, I was at an event where they they had um, they wanted to take pictures of the employees for you know for human resources or recruiting purposes. So I did that. 
Um, and then I've sort of become this go-to person for that kind of photography. And, um, which is kind of cool. It's great. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I do want the big campaign where you're out in, you know, the Cascades or, you but know, Mount you, Rainier and, and. You have done some really cool photo shoots. I mean, maybe not for REI, but tell us what takepart.com is and about your photo shoot about the orca whales. Okay. So I, um, takepart.com. There is the digital division of participant media. Now, participant media has, um, was the, you know, was behind films such as, you know, An Inconvenient Truth and, um, about, you know, the environment and, and Lincoln and all these movies and won an Academy Award this past year. Um, so they have a digital division, which is called takepart.com. Okay. And so it is part of participant media. It's based in Beverly Hills. And um, I, they hired me as their Pacific Northwest photographer to, um, to go and photograph stories that um, affect the environment. Okay. And so one of the first stories I worked on, I, I worked on, it was not one you know, one of the many stories I worked on was the one um, when SeaWorld released their uh, can no longer have uh, captive um, uh, orcas in their in their shows. They can't have those publicly anymore. Yeah, which is um, a bill that was actually passed for people who don't know. The state of California yeah. passed a bill that you can no longer breed orca whales in captivity or use them in shows. Exactly. And so they got so released. When, <laughs> well, well, they can't. The orcas can't get released because many of them have been in, in captivity since the 70s. And Ugh. we're really sort of ripped from the Puget Sound. I mean, we're hunted. And, and it's really, really a sad story. Um, so what's happening now is the Orca Network and all of these um, specialists you know, or what do you do with the orcas now? You know, they, they're going to, they're going to live in like a fishbowl or, you know, what do we do with them? They're, they're, they, right. they go, they go up to humans. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> so, because how would they know, survive yeah. in the wild when they've been fed exactly. buckets of fish? So I was the, I was the photographer on the story who went up because there's a, um, one of the orcas, one of the whales, his uh, name is Corky. Um, it was taken from the, from British Columbia. And as you know, orcas, when they're, when they're, when they're born, they stay with their family for life. And orcas live till 70, 75 years old. Oh, wow. So, um, and they know their family and their pods are their family. And they each, each pod has a distinct way of speaking. Oh. So they, they still call out to Corky and Corky will call out to them. You know, they can't hear each other, but when they played a recording for Corky, she recognized, you know, recognized, he recognized it, you know, that was a family. Oh, wow. So, um, there is, you know, there, they, they've tried to release orcas, you know, free willy and, and, um, but, you know, I, they want to release Corky again to, a to a cove where for the rest of Corky's life, you know, be taken care of. How old is and, Corky now? Um, 
Uh, Corky was captured in the 70s. Um, so at least, and as a as very young, so at least 30, like between 30 and 40 years old. Okay. So Corky could live another 30 years. Oh, yeah. You know. And so, so, so tell us about this. You went up and so... It's not really a release because it's a release to a contained environment of this cove, but it's still much bigger than, obviously, the swimming pool of a sea world. So explain how it all worked. So a net would be put in front of the cove, Mm -hmm. and the the whales swim right past the cove. And so... Possibly her own pod? Yes, her okay. definitely. That's definitely, and um, and so, you know, whereas it wouldn't be out in the wild, and 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 you know, probably couldn't hunt for her, you know, for for you know herself or anything. So, it's you know, it would still have to take care. You know, humans would still have to care for this animal or this, you know, for this mammal and um, and and for the fish, mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, so. They would, you know, so it would be a continual thing, but they could go out and, and, you know, you could at least be somewhat wild, but it would just never be, you know, completely wild. So he would have the freedom to swim and swim and swim in that cove, go, go big distances Mm -hmm. and uh, the freedom that was taken from him. But when his pod is passing him and calling, um, he wouldn't be able to go or because he, he wouldn't know no. how to care for himself. Exactly. So um, they would, you know, it would be, would be contained. It would be, you know, be contained in the, um, in the cove. Yes. So with the net. was this assignment of yours? Uh, were you there when they released? Tell us about the man who donated the cove. I mean, most people don't have a cove to donate, but tell us about the person who donated this space for Corky to live. Well, Jim, he um, now what's happening is since this has just happened this past summer, that they, you know, that SeaWorld will no longer is no longer have these these live shows. So they are now trying to figure out where these fish are going to go live. And there's a lot of pressure, um, uh, and SeaWorld doesn't want to release the fish, but there's a lot of pressure on them to release the fish, to, you know, and they've come this far. So this um, Jim, he lives on Orcas Island, he has a cove, and he his thoughts are that they will release, they'll bring Corky, you know, up to the cove, and they will retrain Corky to go live in the wild. So there's different thoughts. So where he thinks that Corky can go live in the wild, the people, the scientists up in um, northern British Columbia says it's it's impossible. You know, she's been way he's been way too um, uh, you know captive um, too long. Ex- Exactly that. So there's there's a little bit of a you know there's a little bit of an argument going on and and so the release hasn't happened yet but it's it's going to and um, and wherever this whale goes it will be for the best. But you went up to that cove to interview this man and his wife and you told me something earlier about what the wife said about the sounds that all the whales make. She, 
his wife, Paul Spong, is the scientist, and he's the leading expert of, um, of orca whales in the, in, in, in the world. And his wife, Helen, it, you know, works with them. And they work at the, you know, the orca lab on Orcas Island. And they're the only people that live on this island. And the orcas go by their, their home, you know, which is right on a cliff. Oh, wow. and, and the, their house is only accessible by a boat. So there's no cars or anything. And, um, and it's, I, I, the house is like the Smith family Robinson. It's, it's so amazing. <laughs> um, it, it, <laughs> it was like a movie set and I've never seen anything like it. And it takes 40 minutes to get from Telegraph Cove by boat. Um, and he came and he picked me up in his boat and then to the house, to the Orca lab. So what they do is um, they've been given, you know, just grants like you wouldn't believe. And they've put in microphones all over the, the channels there where the orcas pass by. Mm-hmm. So like from 20, 25 miles out and they put about, you know, you know, 20 of them out. And um, they can when the orcas come in, they talk to each other. And they can, and so you, all of a sudden you'll be sitting there and then over the, in their home, um, they will, you'll be able to hear them. And then they run out and they try to track them. I see. And, you know, you can't, you can't see them. You can hear them. Ah. And, um, now Helen has been doing this so long, she can recognize the pod and she knows what pod it is. Oh, neat. So she is, she's really, really amazing. So this is a life's work for them. And so Corky, Total life's work. Yeah, Corky may be released into this um, this cove one day. That sounds like such a cool assignment, uh, Mary. Tell me, give me another example of um, um, just a cool assignment that you went on. I know you've been in all kinds of countries, but what stands out for you as an assignment that was just breathtaking or special or dangerous or scary? Or <laughs> Well, my favorite, you know, my favorite city in the whole wide world is New Orleans. And I love New Orleans. I just, there is just something about it. And maybe because it gets destroyed and it keeps rebuilding itself. And I just love that. I just love that. Um, but it's just such a, the music is awesome. And I was sent on an assignment in New Orleans and um, with Take Part. And it was the 10 year anniversary of Katrina. And I was just blown away by what they've done there and how they, the city rebuilds itself and how, you know, people come together and, and help each other. And, and I believe that everybody in the United States should go to New Orleans just to see what it's like. Because yeah. it, is, it is better. I, I just love, I love this city. And it's better. It's, I would, you know, you walk down the streets and, you know, it's just like, it's better than Disneyland, you know. It's a grown-up Disneyland. <laughs> I know my son went to live in New Orleans for uh, six months or so, and he was really just playing his guitar in the street. But but he, he absolutely loved he Ostensibly, he was doing Habitat for Humanity, which he did after the flood. Uh, but he absolutely, we had to drag him home to finish college. So, Mary, tell me... Um, what's coming up for you? What kind of assignments are in your future? Do you have anything booked that you're going to be going on soon? 
Yes, I do. And um, it's about um, it's about farmers and a very important subject right now, farmers and about water and how they, you know, if you can't water the plants, then, you know, it's going to be tough to, you know, tough to eat. <laughs> yes. So that's a story about water rights. Water rights. Yeah. And so this group of farmers have gotten together and, you know, are purchasing water rights so they can water the fields. And it's keeping food and, um, you know, farmers, you know, local. And, okay. and so they have control over, over um, of, uh, you know, what's, you know, how to, how to water their, 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 their plants. Yeah, how to grow their crops. Well, Mary, I'm yeah. telling you, your job, we, we could talk forever to you, and I'm going to have to have you come back every six months and just tell us what cool assignments you've <laughs> been on. And one of these days, when you're on one, you're going to call me up, and I'm just going to jump on a plane and follow you. <laughs> I would so love that, Janine, you know that. We'll you know, sleep and, in your tabooey. <laughs> yeah, the tabooey, yeah. And I do, I have this tabooey tent, and that's what I, when I was up in Telegraph Cove, I... I, you know, northern, uh, northern Vancouver Island, I stayed at a campsite where there was a place for the RV. So Telegraph Cove is amazing. It's just an amazing place to, to go and visit um, right out of time. And then there's a campsite where you can set up your tent. And I had the Tapui tent, which is on top of my car. And I was the only person in the Tapui <laughs> in yeah. the campsite. And it was it was cold, yeah. but it was awesome. <laughs> I'll bet it was. Oh, but that sounds like so much fun. Mary, can you tell our uh, listeners, where can they follow you? Where can they see your work and your photographs? Well, this is, this is great. So you can go to, um, I have a new website, and it's my own blog, and it's my own, um, it's, it's, I was encouraged to do it by Take Part and um, REI. Um, it's it's called gracewithalens.com. Gracewithalens.com. And I'll put the link to that in my show notes. Perfect. And it's also the same thing for my Instagram account. And I just love the conservation work you're doing. I love how you're bringing that to people's attention. I love seeing, uh, I, I am on your Instagram account, Grace with a Lens, and I love all your rock and roll <laughs> shots, too. I think you're so cool. <laughs> That's next time. That's next time we can talk about festivals and staying at festivals. Well, that's why I said we could really talk forever, and um, that's why you're just going to have to end up being a regular on the show, Mary. But thank you so much. I'm looking forward to seeing those photographs of the farm issue. And, and anytime you have writing, Mary, just send it my way, and I'll put it on girlcamper.com because we love to follow you and see all the great things you're doing. Mary, happy trails. We'll be talking soon. Thank you again. Okay, take, thank you. Okay, right, bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. I want to thank my guest, Mary, for being on the show today. Mary, your life is so exciting, and I can't wait to see what you're doing in the future. If you would like to follow Mary on Instagram, her title on Instagram is Mary underscore grace underscore mckernan she also has a website marygracemckernan.com so mary thank you so much i can't wait to see what you're doing in the future 
I'd also like to thank my sponsors, Little Guy Worldwide and Progressive Insurance, who has this travel tip for you. When you're heading out on the road, it's important to plan your route and pick reliable destinations to stay and visit. It's also nice to have alternative options just in case. You know, girl campers are planners, so always have a backup plan. This is just another way Progressive has you covered while you're out on the road. Thank you, Progressive, for covering us out on the road. I'd also like to thank Stephanie, my producer, for putting the show together. Stephanie and her husband can be heard every Wednesday on Campground of the Week and every Friday on the RV Family Travel Atlas podcast. Check out this week's episode because they did a fantastic interview with Dean, the Casita guy. (laughs) And if you don't know anything about molded fiberglass trailers, you're going to know everything about them after that interview. I loved every minute of it. So thank you, Dean, and thank you, Stephanie and Jeremy. Everybody have a great week. We'll be back next week. Happy trails.